0: Hello and good morning to all 600 registered participants to this webinar. Um, My name is Peter Doge, and it's my pleasure to serve as chair of today's webinar on innovation and technology in orthopedic sports traumatology from the young professional task force perspective. Now, I would like to introduce you to our distinguished webinar faculty, but prior, I would like to recognize the fact that we have seen the light as a young professional task force group under the leadership of past president Willem van der Merwe. And we as a group, we invite you to join us and ISACOS furthermore, and to look for our ISACOS special themed edition that will be presented prior to the Boston conference. So very exciting for us as a group. And we also welcome you there on Sunday the 18th from 6 to 7 a.m at our Young Professional Task Force Boston Conference Breakfast that we will host all together. Before starting, a special thanks to Sue Rainbolt, Laura Ettinger, Michael Serrett, and the whole ISACO's office for the invigorating support we always receive from you. So thank you very much. Now, firstly, we're very pleased to have Adnan Saitna from the United States to help with moderating the program. And we will have presentations from five of our members. The first one, is Camilo Gilito on secondary restraints in ACL reconstruction, proceeding with Juan Pablo Cano from Colombia on robotic rotatory ACL laxity assessment. Then Margaret Fock from Hong Kong on artificial intelligence and VR and its implementation in our future orthopedic practice. Then we swiftly move on with Dr. Franco Vedova from Argentina on the orthobiologics and the role of ultrasound with that. And then we finalize with Dr. Nicolas Pashos from the US on a case report in pediatric ACL. Now, contributing questions and insights to the discussions following the presentations are the following task force members, Dr. Hamid Razak from Singapore, Dr. Filippo Familiari from Italy, Dr. Andreas Voss from Germany, Dr. Claudio Arias from Peru, Dr. Jacob Calce from US, Dr. Theodorakis Marine Fermin from Qatar, and Dr. Bujar Shabani from Kosovo. Throughout the webinar, we will take audience questions and there is a Q&A app. So please type your questions in the Q&A box and it will be answered by our presenters. With that, let's begin with Dr. Helito. Over to you.
1: So we'll talk about a, little, a little bit about secondary restraints in ACL reconstruction. Of course, this is a very, uh, broad subject, so there, there's a lot of things uh, uh, to 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 speak about. Uh, this is my disclosure, and it's interesting that uh, arthroscopy ushered a new area of knee surgery. So uh, when when arthroscopy started, uh, all knee surgeons, all sports surgeons, started to look at the ACL like this, and of course we forgot a lot, a lot of uh, very uh, important peripheral uh, structures and. We, we, we gave a lot of attention to the ACL inside the notch and we suddenly forgot some, some very important uh, uh, structures that also work with the ACL. Uh, it's almost impossible to talk about all secondary strains associated with the ACL in, in, in this time frame, but we'll talk a little bit about the collateral ligaments, especially the MCL and the post corner. Bone morphology: uh, focus on the tibial slope and meniscus tear. Uh, focus on medial ramp and lateral root, and also the anterolateral structures. So this is a very uh, common case. This is a male patient, 31 years old. He had a combined ACL and MCL tear. Uh, he was submitted to an isolated ACL reconstruction, and he has this uh, residual symptomatic knee instability. We need to, when when we think about the combined ACL and MCL, uh, the, for example, the return to sport of patients is similar when you have a combined and an isolated injury. But if, if you look at the level of activity, only 10% of patients with a concomitant MCL injury can return to their pre-injury level. So it's very important to, to diagnose and to treat this combined injury. Uh, also, when, when we talk about ACL failure, uh, there are some studies showing that, the MCL t- that an MCL tier is, uh, is associated with a 1.62 higher risk of revision. Uh, and also, this study with uh, almost uh, 20,000 patients uh, concluded that the non-surgical treatment of a concomitant MCL injury in the setting of an ACL reconstruction uh, may increase the risk of ACL revision. So... This is something we have to look carefully when we are treating an ACL injury. Uh, on the other hand, the, post- the combined posterolateral corner injuries uh, are not that common as the MCL injury. Uh, this study uh, showed about one percent of combined ACL and posterolateral corner injuries, so it's not that common. And uh, in this specific study, repair and reconstruction could achieve uh, good results. We just have to be careful uh, when we are evaluating this combined ACL and posterior corner injury because uh, MRI is not a good tool when we are dealing uh, with chronic injuries. We we showed a very uh, low correlation between MRI and physical examination, and it, it's mandatory to to do the combined reconstruction when when we have these two uh, two. Uh, Lesions. Uh, we 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 have a, our own technique with a combined uh, femoral tunnel for the ACL and the posterior corner, and we showed uh, good results in several studies with only 5.6% failure rate, which for uh, for us, uh, considering this this complex injury, it's a very uh, good rate. And we have to to deal with that. We we, we need to do perform uh, we need to perform osteotomy in chronic injuries, especially. Uh, when, when we have axis deviation, and uh, it's it's possible to, to perform the, the surgery in one stage as we show it in this paper. Regarding tibial slope, uh, we know that patients with a higher tibial slope are, are, are at a high risk for ACL failure. Um, the threshold now is around 12 degrees, so this is an important risk factor. Uh, for example, this case, he had two previous uh, ACL reconstruction and two previous failure. He had a 19-degree So, uh, in these situations, it's important to perform the slope correction osteotomy, the fixation with staples is a simple fixation. And uh, here is the the correction from 19 to 7 degrees. And uh, after that, we perform the the reconstruction. In this specific case, we use a peroneus longus graft. Uh, Meniscus tear is a very important uh, secondary restraint, considering the, the ACL. Uh, mainly the lateral root and, and the ramp lesion. So in this study, uh, this study showed that the, the, in primary ACL reconstructions, we have an instance of, 12, of 12% of lateral root tears, and for revisions, it's 25%. So almost one uh, every four patients that undergo a revision ACL have a, a lateral root tear, and we certainly have to deal uh, with that. And the repair of the lateral meniscus posterior root can reduce the amount of internal rotation instability. So especially in in those cases that have a a important uh, rotator instability or or a high grade pivot shift, we have to be aware and to perform this this repair if needed. And this uh, recent study uh, showed that the ACL reconstruction and a combined lateral root repair uh, can achieve similar results when comparing to the acl reconstruction alone so this is a procedure uh we have to 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 do uh when we deal with these tears regarding the ramp lesion uh the incidence is around uh 16 to 12, 20% this study showed 23% of of ramp tears associated with the acl and uh it's important to mention that the MRI is not the, the best uh, method to diagnose this, so we have to look for it in, in arthroscopy. Some studies also show that the, the conservative treatment of these injuries uh, can achieve good results, but, for example, in this study, only uh, the evaluation was only performed to the anterior portals. There are several ways to repair it. Uh, you, you can repair with all inside devices with the postulateral portal and the, and the hook, using the hook repair and also with the traditional inside out repair, uh, which is the technique I, I, I prefer more often. And this study showed a failure rate of 7.3%, but it's important to mention that for the all inside it was 21% and for the postulateral corner only 40%. 4.3%. Uh, finally, uh, we we'll talk about the anterolateral structures. Uh, the anterolateral structures combined with the ACL, it's a it's a very common uh, combined lesion. This study with 3D MRI showed 87.5% of combined lesions, and it's important to 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 mention that the the healing of the anterolateral structure is really poor. It's almost 70% of non-healing. Uh, when we we look at we look at the serial MRIs uh, of this patient. So these, these lesions, they, they don't heal properly. Uh, so maybe we need to look uh, on that more carefully. And in case of combined injury of the ACL and the anterolateral structures, the ACL reconstruction alone does not reestablish the normal knee uh, biomechanics. And that's why in patients with an uh, enteralateral uh, lesion in, in the acute setting, the, the isolated reconstruction of the ACL uh, presents a worse IKDC and lesion, worse problems, and also a higher rate of re-rupture. Uh, on the other hand, the combined reconstruction of the intralateral structures in the ACL, uh, it has a very good result and a lower failure rate, uh, when comparing with BTB and harmstone reconstruction alone, and also in several populations uh, with a higher risk for failure, like chronic ACL tears, like hyperlaxity patients, uh, this combined reconstruction can achieve very good results. And the recent meta analysis uh, also showed that the combined reconstruction presented a lower rate of re rupture and also improved the rotatory instability evaluated by the pivot shift. And with all all that said, the the complication rate of these reconstructions is is really low, uh, and all of that, most of the complications are are related to uh, improper techniques, so we have to learn how to do it properly. Uh, Indications are, we have like a few consensus that try to to establish the best indications, uh, but for me, uh, any patient at an increased risk or failure uh, is a good indication for this combined uh, reconstruction, and we use it, the, this gracilis technique uh, with a combined femoral tunnel, but uh, of course uh, lateral tino is also a very uh, good option. So as a take-home message, uh, an isolated ACL reconstru- uh, isolated ACL tear is the minority of the ACL tears. Uh, it's mandatory to properly evaluate, evaluate the collateral ligaments and treat them in case of uh, virus valgus instability associated with an ACL injury. Uh, slope correction is rarely indicated for primary ACL, but should be considered for revisions, especially if the if the if the slope is is higher than 12 degrees. Uh, meniscus repair should be performed, especially in case of medial ramp and lateral root, and the anterolateral structure tears are very common. And an associated procedure can improve the ACL reconstruction results and also uh, decrease the failure rate, which is the, our main objective when dealing with these patients. Uh, thank you very much for the invitation and for your
2: attention. Fantastic presentation. Thank you, Camilo. Uh We're going to open up the questions and answers. And so uh, I just remind the participants that we have a QA and a tab at the bottom of your screen. If you would like to ask a question, please submit it there. And we're going to start off uh, by inviting my colleague, uh, Dr. Hamid Razak, to start off the questions.
3: Um, great, great talk, uh, Prof. Camilo. Thank you very much for that um, Um, really appreciated the fact that you mentioned posterior tibial slope as one of the causes for um, failure of an ACL reconstruction. I wanted to ask in your opinion, um, do you have a threshold for coronal malalignment in the primary ACL injury setting? Would you address coronal malalignment when you're doing a primary ACL? Um, Back in my country, and this part of the world, we have lots of patients with constitutional virus of the tibia. Um, um, What are your thoughts about you know, um correcting coronal malalignment in primary ACL setting. Is there a role, um or is there a threshold for you in terms of virus deformity?
1: Uh, great, great question, Hamid. Uh, I think uh, you know some some populations they have like more virus than 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 others, so uh, it's important for us to 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 deal with that. I think it, it, if 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 it is a symmetrical virus, you know, even if it's, uh an increased virus compared to the mean of the of the of the other populations but if it's symmetrical uh i tend not to reconstruct the, the i tend not to correct that not to do an osteotomy in the primary setting uh but in the revision setting it's it's a completely different story so i think if if we have a acute ACL injury in a primary setting with a symmetrical virus i tend not to do any osteotomy to correct that on the other hand, if you have a chronic injury with an asymmetrical virus, even if it's not a, a big asymmetry or if, even if it's not a big virus, it's, it's uh, different from the other side. So it's, it can be considered a uh, pathological. So in these situations, uh, you should consider the correction. Uh, so I think the, the main point is to differentiate if, if, if the virus is symmetrical or asymmetrical and if the lesion is acute or chronic. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think we do have a question in the QA
3: um, box, Adnan. We? Shall we, we tackle yes. that? So, uh, yeah, so uh,
2: Camilo, you have a, a question from the audience. Are you performing superficial MCL and ACL reconstruction for grade two medial instability?
1: Uh, very good question as well. I think it depends on the, on the activity of the patient. Uh, I think uh if if it's a patient with a very high degree of activity and you take you, you take these lesions acute you can you can do a medial reinforcement uh, but you know this is very controversial. I think it it depends a lot on the patient demand if for example is a is a soccer player that you know we 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 have a low threshold for for uh, MCL repair. Uh, but if it's a patient, uh, it's a normal patient with a not high-grade sport activity, I tend to, to do the conservative treatment for grade 2 uh, MCL.
2: That's great. Thank you, Dr. Helito. Uh We're going to move on to our next uh, presenter in the interest of time. So our next presenter is Dr. Juan Pablo Martinez Cano talking about robotic rotatory ACL laxity assessment.
4: So... We're going to talk about uh, this robotic uh, evaluation, and in fact, we're going to talk about instrument-based rotatory laxity assessment of the ACL-deficient knee. And this is part of a systematic review that we did in our joint Professionals task force. These are the co-authors of this of this study that we're working uh, from Italy, Dr. Familiari from. Uh, Portugal, Dr. Vinagre, from Norway, Dr. Moash, and from uh, Qatar, Dr. Marin. So uh, we have the the people chief test has been our our way of evaluating the anterolateral laxity of the ACL deficiency, this rotational component, and we have three grades for it. But uh, there are some limitations for this classification and the way that everyone does the physical exam sometimes is different, and the way that everyone grades the the maneuver also is different. So it would be desirable to have a a way of quantifying the rotational or anterolateral laxity uh, evaluation. Uh, For the pivot shift, uh, as we know, we have three grades, and we have some preliminary data from a Started with four observers and seventeen patients with a low interobserver reliability between the grading of the of the pivot shift test with a kappa that is only zero point thirty nine. So, why is this important? As Camilo was saying, the the pivot shift or the anterolateral laxity would be an important factor to to think about the anterolateral augmentation surgery as we have other risk factors too. So when we are considering this anterolateral augmentation, we know that this can protect the ACL graft and decrease the re-rupture risk, improving our outcomes. You can do a modified lamer or an anterolateral ligament reconstruction, but we have to decide in which patients to do them. And if we can like, do the pivot shift in the same way so there are ways that uh, have described studies that have described how should we do the the maneuver first internal rotation in extension then the valgus and then knee flexion and release the internal rotation so i was telling you that if we can perform it it would be uh, better but there are some differences so so we have this uh Robotic ways or these instrument based ways of evaluating this, this laxity. And first, we have the inertial sensors or the accelerometer, like the Kira, that uses a, a sensor. And then we have these patient motion sensors, like the knee cages system. Uh, we have now bigger stuff like MRI, uh, rotational sensors, as the rotameter and robotic electromagnetic like the air uh, device or navigation systems that you can use during the surgery but uh, some of these may have uh, some logistic uh, problems because they're too big to have in the office or you have to wait until you're in the or to to do the measurement and you would like to do the measurement before uh, to decide what to do so so Well, the question that we had was how reliable are the measurements with these devices and what is the intra and inter-observer correlation for for them. And So our aim was to systematically review uh, that intra-observer and inter-observer reliability with these uh, devices. And we conducted a systematic review in, in accordance with the 2020 PRISMA guidelines And we did, uh, we were searching for the intra-observer and inter-observer reliability of these devices. We searched in PubMed, Medline, Scopus, Embase, and Google Scholar. These were our uh, search terms that we used. And the inclusion criteria included papers with rotational laxity assessment in the ACL injured patients, in English language and human studies. And we excluded uh, papers that were cadaveric or animal studies or biomechanical reports or editorial case reports reviews. This was a reliability evaluation and our main outcome was the ICC. So we found 725 studies Uh, we have a a large number of duplicates, and then uh, we reviewed the titles, the abstracts, and then we went to the papers that seemed to have the data that we were looking for. We have three reviewers from our group that were doing this search and this review. And at the end, we found 17 studies uh, with 723 patients uh, with patients aged between 14 and 63 years old. These were the the 17 studies that we we found and we were looking for a number of patients, the characteristics of these patients and also the device characteristics. If it was a sensor, it was an MRI or what type it was. And then our main outcome that was the ICC for for the reliability of the inter and intra-observer. So most of, of, of the studies are about inertial sensors nine uh, and then we have a uh, few numbers for the other uh, types of, of devices uh, the global intra observer and inter observer icc range was very good for in general for the for the studies it was between 0.63 and 0.99 uh, for the inter observer and something similar for the inter observer but uh, most of uh, the Best results were for the robotic electromagnetic, MRI, and navigation systems, but we, we still have small number of papers for for these studies. And as you noticed, these are the bigger devices, the the ones that are not very easy to to have in the office. So so we can conclude that the objective or robotic devices that evaluate robotic uh, rotatory ACL laxity or anterolateral laxity demonstrate very high interobserver and interobserver reliability. They show at least substantial agreement in the worst scenario and almost perfect near to one in the best scenarios. Though uh, we still don't know the threshold for severity, for anterolateral augmentation decision in in this type of of, of devices, or it, it would be also desirable to have like a classification uh, with with this type of measurement. measurements. So the, still, the pivot shift is a very important guide for the physical exam and for these decisions. Also, we have uh, some problems with with availability to have one of these MRI or robotic devices. Uh, even the sensor type. Uh, um, devices have have cost for every patient you include. So, so who's going to pay for this, the patient, the insurance, or or is this just limited to research purposes? Uh, it would be desirable to have them for, for every patient and for the decision-making process. Thank you very much. And any question that you have,
2: please. Uh, thank you for your fantastic presentation. We're going to start off the questions uh, from Professor Familiari from Italy.
4: Thank you, Adnan, and thank you, Juan Pablo, for your wonderful presentation. I'd like to ask you, what do you think about using these devices uh, routinely in uh, your daily clinical practice? Do you think they are sufficiently reliable to be used as a guide in terms of additional procedures to be performed? Yeah, I think... I would like to have them in my in my clinical practice every day, and 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 as we have age, uh, type of sports, uh, if it's a revision case or not, uh, knowing this anterolateral laxity is important for for deciding, for example, the anterolateral augmentation. So I would like to have them, but uh, we we have tried with some of these uh, companies, and it, it has not been easy to to acquire one of them. I think we still have like uh, some logistics and some costs that we have to, to, to evaluate, but, but I would like to have them uh, and help in the decision process, as well as for research, because it, it's, it's going to be very helpful to, to know how good in an objective way are our, our results. Thank you
2: so i i'm also very interested in this area and uh, we've done some uh, research that is not yet published using um, smartphones to uh, evaluate knee laxity parameters and actually uh, you mentioned that affordability is one of the barriers but um, now we have the ability to just uh, purchase little stickers that we can use as dots that are very affordable for uh, tracking and really probably in the future we can use that as a disposable technology But the question really comes uh, from how we apply this to clinical practice, because uh, it's very uh, helpful to have um, information about the grade of pivot shift, because that's what our literature is based on. And so we know that if people have a high grade pivot shift, then uh, they have an increased risk of graft rupture or adverse outcomes. But when we have a figure like uh, tibial acceleration, um, it's very hard to know how to uh, Uh, apply that in clinical practice do you have any recommendations firstly which metrics are you actually measuring and secondly how do you use those to make your decision Uh, are you still relying on correlating it with a pivot shift grade or do you have other data that helps you make decisions on patient care
4: yeah we have the the knee laxity tester that from stores that helps to know about the anterior posterior uh, Laxity of the knee, but but still for for this anterolateral and this rotational laxity, we're we're using the pivot shift, and it, I think it's easy for all of us to know who has a grade three with the explosive pivot shift. But those patients in grade two, grade one, they, they are more more difficult, and and, and still this the anterolateral surgery could help uh, from the grade two uh, and three. So. So we're still using Pivot Shift, and but we would like to to add some of this. I, I think the, the 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 smartphone and the stickers is not yet available for for everywhere. So, but but that seems like a a very good way of of measuring it. I, I have known that, in, I think in Pittsburgh they 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 were developing it
2: excellent thank you so we're going to move on to the next presentation which is dr margaret Fock. she's talking about artificial intelligence and virtual reality
5: good morning good afternoon evening um, so thank you for the organization uh, committee to have me to talk about ai and virtual reality it's slightly different from the other topics so there's no nothing to disclose so when we talk about artificial intelligence and all right. Yeah. So when we talk about artificial intelligence, um, we are getting well. It's basically getting into everywhere. So we are, and it seems to be that uh, there's nothing that we can we can do. It's getting very common, and we have the Chat Chat GPT, which I think even the students are talking about it. We have video games, but the question is, what does it matter to orthopedics? So I go to Chat GPT and ask about that question, basically, and said what does AI and VR t- have the potential to do in orthopedics? And these are the answers. They said it is good for diagnosis and treatment planning because we can use a large amounts of patient's data and then they can analyze it for medical records, imaging scans, and so we can have a better personalized treatment plans. Second, it is better for surgical planning and simulations? Because the VR technology can be used to create realistic 3D models so that we can the surgeons can plan and, and basic practice complex procedures before they perform them. And third is for rehabilitation and patient education. They can be used to immerse experiences to help the patients to rehabilitate. So these are some of the examples. When we talk about AI and mass, and mass data. Do you still remember when we, when we do medical students or when we do um, interns, we have an ECG? And the things that we do is we do ECG and that is what comes up with. They said that it's normal, or abnormal, and then we, we either ignore that um, when it says abnormal. or So this is basically mass data and that's the, the, the form of AI because they analyze the data for us. So with that, there's the machine learning and the deep learning. Machine learning is just we taught them what they do and then they recognize the pattern. But deep learning is when we give them unstructured data and they can screen through it and then give us an answer. So some of the simplest things that we can do is like simple measurements on the radiographs. For spine, we can do the corpse angle, we can measure the leg length and the bone age. But still, in some way, it still depends on the human because we need to position the patients in a, in a better position before we take the radiographs. It is better for fracture recognitions and with CT and MRI, it is good for soft tissue injuries and tumor diagnosis. So how accurate are they? Well, if you look at the literature, we find that for fracture hips, the sensitivity is about 71% and specificity is 96.7%. So it is quite sensitive and specific. However, it is still a bit poor in the fracture localization. So it is difficult to tell us whether it's a trapo- um, transvascular fracture or whether it's intertroglateral fracture, which may be different in choosing the different implants. How about tibial pro fractures? Well, the AI seems to be accurate as well as the human, except that it is faster. So we don't need the humans to basically look at it. We can just ask the, 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 the surgeons to basically confirm it. And then same with the vertical fractures. We just know that it is known to be a missed detection for up to 30%. And with the AI, you get the detection same as an orthopedic surgeon, but a little bit worse than a spine specialist who are basically trained to do it every day. How about rib fractures? Again, if you use it with, the, with um, the confirmation with the radiologist, actually the accuracy and the speed of detecting rib fractures are much better. And with the, even with the, we we're talking about ACL in and cartilage fractures and injuries within the knees with a systematic review, AI in MRI is the same as human. And the prediction accuracy is 72.5% to 100%. There's still some way to, to go, but it is getting more, better and better. So what's just about that? Well, the diagnosis is good, but based on the diagnosis, now they can actually help us to talk about the risk prediction. So we can screen in the patient's risk, and then we can put in the the risk of the pathologies, and then they will tell us the complication rate. So for example, in spine spine surgeries, how much it will have um, complications, what is the rate? They can tell us the prognostication. So who are in high-risk group, and if they are in high-risk group, should we do surgeries? we can predict a clinical difference in patient's outcomes. For example, FAI undergoing hip arthroscopy, OPL use after knee arthroscopy and all that. And so that will give us a personalized treatment algorithm to to the patient so that we can give the patients a better complication rate or participation. This is another thing. This is um, I have to declare. There's no conflict of interest, but this is uh, basically um, uh, a software or basically is, uh, is a system that is um, basically developed initially with um, with orthopedic surgeons, and it is now used in US as well as UK. And basically, it is to you can the patients can go into a um, a radiology center and take a CT or MRI. And then they will feed the data and the AI is to analyze it. And after that, if they detect something, then they will screen through to the to the, to the kind of thoracic surgeon or to the or to, to uh, um, neurosurgeons. And they will also, the uh, patients will also receive a real-time alert. So this will help the patients to get early detection very early on in the local area before they think about transfer to a tertiary center if needed. How about surgical planning? Again, for the medical ed- medical education and surgical trainees, it is good because nowadays, with especially with the COVID times, I mean, obviously we don't see a lot of cases and we don't have to have a lot of practice in cases. So now, with the with the with the three D models, we can actually do more simulation, and so we don't need to do like see one, do one, teach one as as we were taught before. Now we can do a lot more practice. And so how about evidence? Again, the evidence supports that VR in surgical training versus surgical guides only increase the procedural accuracy and the completion of the task in medical students. And that is noted in the randomized control trial with the performing of tbo nails For the arthroscopy simulations versus the cadaveric models, again, they see that there's a priority in task completion. However, I think we do, in fact, need some cadaveric models. Uh, there is uh, um, to actually get the hands-on but um, I think the arthroscopic simulation actually helps a lot. This is just a surgical planning of a complex tumor surgery. And then you can see that with the 3D models initially, and then with a real-time um, video and video and, and VR planning, you can do the job much more easily and much more inaccurately. How about, last but not least, how about rehabilitation? Well, for sports rehab and post-fracture rehab, I think it's Helps the patients to simulate the home environment for the post fracture. We have, for example, hip fractures. It helps the patients even with the sports we have, for example, throwing um, throwing a ball, and to see how they how they how they react. And then so you can have more simulation um in the in the field before you go actually go into the sporting field. And this is another thing that we can use is for amputees. A lot of times that before unless the patients get uh, actual prosthesis they aren't. They, they cannot practice it but nowadays be, and that takes time to get a really good prosthesis and now you can do that you can do a lot of simulation you can do a lot of practice before you actually get the prosthesis and this is a patient which we which I saw first when he fits on the prosthesis and you can see that how easily and how comfortable he is already moving the prosthesis and you don't need a lot of learning. So it decreases the learning time and the patients will be able to do more compliance using the prosthesis. So the question is, will AI and VR take over the world and will orthopedic surgeons still be needed? Well, actually, GPT said that we do. Um, it is only uh it is only able to improve the efficiency and efficacy for orthopedic practice, and so it produces better outcomes. But it is still in the early stage of the require development and require further research and refinement before they can be adopted in clinical practice. So, I mean, we do the autopilots um for for automobile uh, and for for cars, and you can know that sometimes you still have crash. So you still need the humans to drive it and to endorse it in certain times, but we don't need to, to worry that it is a threat. It is a it is a tool for us. There's no option to just ignore AI and VR because they're everywhere. In fact, we should embrace them and learn to work together, and they will give us more time to think out of the box. And at the end of the day, AI does not provide em- emotion or empathy to our patients. And this is what we are here to provide the empathy and emotion as well. So what's so I hope that you um, enjoyed this talk and thank you for listening.
2: Thank you, Dr. Fock. Great presentation. So we're going to start off the questions with uh, Andreas Voss, Dr. Andreas Voss from Germany.
6: Hello, everyone. And Margaret, thank you for your presentation. I think you brought it absolutely to the point. So I would say my, my, my first question would be like, how do you see orthopedic sports medicine and especially orthopedics and trauma surgery in 20 years from now?
5: Um, yeah, that is a good question. Um, I think we, we had a discussion with um, some of the senior surgeons and they was like, oh, my God, do we actually do we actually have a job in the end? But I think it just helped us to do a lot more. Um, It will help us with the diagnosis, as I said, I mean, with the MRI, with everything they will, they will be able to diagnose earlier. And I do think that in fact, it will help to bring our patients in a lot earlier. And so, for example, the patients doesn't really need to, especially in some rural area, they don't need to travel a long time to see us. They can do a lot of things in the, the, at the home or around the area so that, but they are getting the proper treatment and um, if, if we have the diagnosis. So I think it's just, it's, good. it's a helper, helpful tool if we just know how to use them.
6: Yeah. So you would see the uh, AI more in the diagnostic section. What do you believe will be managed by uh, artificial intelligence and, and what do we need a surgeon for?
5: Um, as I said, I think um, we still need to search. I mean, the, the AI will give us facts. And so it will help the patients to understand what are the percentage, the pronunciation is good, but at the end of the day, you still need to see the patients. You Basically what we are doing as, um, as human, basically we detect whether the, 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 the patient's emotion, we may be able to, we, 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 it's just by experience, we understand what the patients may be fear of. And this is something that at the moment AI cannot, detect about emotions. So we will be able to counsel them in a better way, but the AI is helping us by giving us more information so that we can tell the patients
6: better. Perfect, thank you so much, Margaret. So maybe we have one question from the audience. Um, What ethical considerations should be taken into account when implementing machine learning and artificial intelligence in sports injury management, such as privacy concerns, data security, and maintaining athletes' autonomy?
5: Um there's a very great there's a very good question. I think um it's difficult to say I think for well, when we when we um, when we feed in the information to the AI, basically we actually need the information in order to get into the accuracy. We actually need to feed more information to the AI to in order for them to learn what this is, and so that we have better diagnosis and better um, fracture fracture recognition, better better um, sub tissue um, injuries recognitions. But these are not. We don't actually need to have the patient's um, data to be put in it. I mean, they 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 are putting in it in a in a in an enormous way but um but yes but we need to protect our patients um, data in the end is by giving them by by having also something to basically um to 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 um, it's just so we um it's you you still need to protect them so you de- do need software and we do need um um some kind of security to actually help so so that because now we're putting more information into the computer so we need to have a good security system so that they are not being breached and being leaked yeah it's just difficult yeah
6: thank you margaret and uh, thank you for your presentation and uh, i think i'll give back to adnan for the next talk
2: yeah thank you both we're going to move on to orthobiologics now with dr franco della vadova from argentina
7: i have nothing to disclose Today science is focusing on what or which are the best orthobiologics for each pathology, or we are looking which is the best concentration of splatelage in the PRP, or if we we have to use uh, leukocyte-rich or leukocyte-pro PRP. But nothing of this matter if we apply our orthobiologics in the wrong location. Today, I'm going to try to show you the existing evidence and to share my experience in why we always have to use ultrasound guidance when we perform a non-surgical procedure with orthobiologists in spore medicine. Ultrasound guidance give up a lot of advantages improving the effectiveness of our treatment because we have a direct visualization in what and how we are injecting the biologics, And also we can see the tissue response to the fluid. And today we have very affordable and cheap and portable technology that allow us to do it in an easy way, even in the office. The learning curve is really short because Orthopedic surgeon know the anatomy well, especially if you perform arthroscopy surgery. It's very easy to triangulate with the screen and the part of the body that you're going to inject. For that, it's very important to have in the same line of visualization the screen and the and the injecting part of the body. You have to take some time in the setup, especially for being sterile or previous visualization, but you can learn it very really quickly. There is a lot of evidence that said that ultrasound guidance is are going to, to be better for us because we are going to be more accurate. We're going to generate less pain in the patient. And in most anatomical locations, we are going to have better clinical results in our patients. These are the parts of the body or the tissue where ultrasound guidance give us more advantages compared when we do perform a blinding injection with orthobiologics. Ultrasound was a game changer in the treatment of tendinopathy. You can correctly treat a tendon with a tendinopathy blinding injecting in any part of the tendon. You have to search for tendinosis focuses and treat it and also search for Neovascularization with the power Doppler and also treated. Here you have a case where I'm doing parallel therapy in a patellar tendon. You can see the tendinosis focuses, the focus there, and how I directly go to this ill part of the tendon with the knee, and how the fluid flow into the tendon. Also you can change the direction of the knee to the part of the tendon where you want to treat. As we got the shoulder, we always saw that blind injection were good and enough for shoulder uh, pathology, but science show us that we were wrong. In my opinion, ultrasound guidance in the shoulder is where we can get more advantages of this technique. This is the, the point of the shoulder where science shows us that we are going to have better clinical results and more patient satisfaction when you use it. We know that the bicep is one of the main generators of pain in the shoulders, and using ultrasound guidance, we can dramatically improve the the results of our patients. Here, you can see from the posterior portal how we inject PRP in this patient with a Glenohumeral joint disease. And you can see that we are in the wrong, in the right place, watching how the, this posterior capsula is distending. We can be more accurate in the chromium clavicular shown either. This is a case of partial supraspinatus rupture. Here you can see how I go daily to the focus of injury and how I'm injecting in this part of the tendon and not anywhere. Then we change the proof and see and see in transverse plane, and you can see new focus of tendinosis or new focus of partial rupture and also treated. Finally, we we go to to the subacromial space and also inject the In some cases, when we have inflammatory process in the the bicep tendon, we go to the bicipital group and also treat the knee. Ultrasound give us a lot of advantages in treatment of degenerative shock. For example, in the knee, we can search for inflammatory synovial fluid and take it if we find it. Imagine to to inject all uh, the the autobiology that we are injecting this patient and mix with this inflammatory tissue. For sure, the results are not going to be the one we expect. After that, we leave the needle into the joint and slowly inject, in this case, uh, PRP. We can also get to medical pathology when you use ultrasound, in, in case of isolated medical injury or in the scenario of a degenerative knee. We can also easily go to the heat, especially in the neck. Here you have a case how in the office, we are doing PLP in, in the neck of the, hip shown, can you see how the anterior capsule is distending while we are injecting, and we are sure we are in the in the right location. As regards the muscle injury, we usually use autobiologics in in chronic injury, in in chronic scenario with the presence of fibrosis. Here is a case of proximal rectus femoris injury. Uh, a and here, but under direct visualization, we are injecting PRP. Look how thick this tendon is. We inject slowly a little amount of PRP into the tendon, and after that, we inject in the plane to separate the muscle between the tendon fibrosis. We can also treat and perform hematoma evacuation. This is the case of then it's leg, you see this hematoma between the, the solutes and the medial gastrocnemius and how we are evacuating. And after that, we inject the PLP. Here you see under daily visualization just where the injury is, we are uh, applying our PLP. Finally, to sum up ultrasound guidance, is a perfect tool to perform our autobiology treatments. It is allowed to be more accurate and precise because we have a visualisation on what and how Why we are injecting, achieving better results in our patients.
2: Thank you. Fantastic, thank you. So we have uh, three faculty waiting to ask you questions. We have Dr. Claudia Arias from Peru, Jacob Kalkai from United States and Theodorakis Furman from Qatar. So I'll let them ask one question each. And if we have time, we'll take one question from the audience as well.
5: Okay.
7: Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Claudia.
5: Thank you. Um, Well, thank you very much, Dr. Franco, for this amazing presentation. We have used nowadays our and now we also know this assessment with the ultrasound guide. You show us uh, about tendinopathies. And my question will be: uh, Which clinical difference do you find now uh, using or not the use of ultrasound guide?
7: Okay, Claudia. Hello. This is a great question. It is easy, it's easy to, to inject blinding tendons, but the main problem there is the amount of ultrabiology, for example, PRP that you are going to inject, and to be sure. That you treat the the ill part of the tendon, you have you have to inject a lot of PRP. In some cases, you you're gonna you can have a, some complication about that with a hyperreaction of the tendon, and this is a bad complication. I have two or three patients with that, and, and believe me, they stay with pain for many time. So when you use ultrasound guidance, you look or for the tendinosis focus or the partial rupture that you have in the tendon, I just inject on it. I think that it gives you a lot of advantages because uh, uh, when you inject a lot of PRP into the tendon, your results are not going to be the same. Franco, thank you that so really
3: much. That was a fantastic, time. that was a fantastic talk. Um, Thank you. I, I think it's very eye-opening because a lot of us we we do these injections blindly. So I think it's very it's very helpful to hear your, your experience. I have a couple practical questions. One is for a, a new a surgeon that would be new to this, how do you recommend incorporating that into your practice? Do you remember do you recommend starting with a couple certain joints or tendons or certain types of injections? first, or do you just switch over entirely? And then do you routinely use the ultrasound for diagnostic purposes afterwards to assess healing or the tendinopathy um, in follow-up visit?
7: Very uh, cool question, Sarton. Uh, uh, at the beginning, I, I began to use ultrasound shots for injections and uh, it is really easy to learn especially if you perform arthroscopy surgery or because it's very easy to triangulate with the probe, the knee, and the patient. How I said, it's very important to have in the same line, the patient and the screen. You, you don't have to change the direction. This is a big mistake. Uh, and and uh, uh, I think that you can observe and, and, and study a little with a with a. Uh, a methodology expert in ultrasound. You can learn from him in the office maybe a, a few times. And, and then it's very easy to recognize the anatomy. You have to know where you want to go and then decide and it, it's really easy. Uh, And after some uh, years of doing uh, ultrasound procedures, I begin to use in my office for diagnostic you know uh, because uh, it's more difficult to learn how to diagnose some 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 injury especially muscle injury that is more more difficult but today I I have my my ultrasound that I use with my phone in the office and I use it on most of my patients
2: Dr Furman would you like to ask a question?
4: Congratulations for your presentation, Franco. Just for the for the for the rest of the participants, I would like to know what is your objective when injecting these chronic muscle injuries? Are you trying okay. to do a speed recovery? Are you trying to get a better okay. scar tissue? Theo.
7: Theo, this is a great great um, question because I think that science is looking in the wrong location when studying uh, muscle injury and orthobiology, because most of the paper are looking for a sooner return to play but you know muscle also have soft tissue uh, connective tissue tendon fascia um, when the muscle injury affect this this soft, this connective tissue there is a lot of possibility that you are to have fibrosis there so uh, I use orthobiologics in muscle injury, muscle tendon injury when I have a fibrosis. And I have uh, I have very good results with that. But I, I don't look for a sooner return to play. I look for treat the fibrosis complication of this injury.
2: Excellent. Dr. Vadova, there's some questions for you in the Q&A, but I think we're running short on time, so uh, maybe you could uh, address them there, or perhaps after we have finished the session, we have more time for Q&A, and uh, if you're available, then we could put those questions to you at that time. But for now, we're going to move on to the next uh, presentation, which is Dr. Nicholas Pashos talking about pediatric ACL. Thank you.
3: I don't have any relevant disclosures. Actually, I don't have any disclosures apart from the fact that I'm a, an editor for the society journal. And what I'm going to try to do in the next few minutes is to present one single patient that sustained two different ACL injuries, and try to, uh, you know, uh, present how technology and innovation has helped to um, deal and manage these patients. So. Seven-year-old female injured her knee during soccer, non-contact injury, valgus load. Presents with her knee locked around thirty degrees, huge effusion, a crazy amount of pain. Uh, as most of you have already seen here on the AP view, you can see a little bit of a suspicion of a small crack. And then, if you you know are not fooled by the overlap, you can see a small tibial spine fracture. And I think in the last few uh, years, I think it's clear that the best management starts with the best diagnosis. So what I do is I always do an MRI. And you would think, of course, yeah, I would do an MRI. But if you think a seven-year-old or even a six-year-old Sometimes it's not the easiest thing to do an MRI. So sometimes you need to sedate them. You need to have you know the technology and the innovation and artificial intelligence actually is doing pretty good efforts on this to have our patients to be really immobile and to be able to get through an MRI. Why we need an MRI? Uh, here I'll try to highlight that uh, you know like small. Ligament here, which connects from the medial side and goes all the way to the lateral side. And this is the intramenuscular ligament. So, if you would see here, this is the fracture side. This is the ACL, which seems to be intact. But that intramenuscular ligament is where the bone should reduce. So, as you will see in the astroscopic images, this is something that if you try to put it back, it won't heal. And obviously, we identify that these associated injuries, like cartilage and meniscus injuries, even in these young kids, are far more often than we think is one out of eight or one out of three patients that have an ACL injury that have an associated injury. So it's very, very important to recognize this so you can treat them. Um, I'm not going to go over. I'm sure that you know the details, Mayors more than 50 years now. Describe this, you know, like um, classification, we adjusted them this in different types. And I think, you know, type one is clear, it's not displaced, it can go non-operatively. Type three is clear as well as surgical, but I think what has changed in the last years is that type two, because of the innovation, because the techniques are getting better, we can get into a small knee and do a very good, effective work safely. I think it can, you know, like it's moving towards uh, getting treatment uh, surgical as well. So, this is my technique with some small pearls. You go in and, you know, like uh, typically you have to wash the knee for five minutes. Uh, then you recognize the front of the fracture. And then you can see the intra ligament and you can see the uh, contusions there from the bone hitting on that area without this soft tissue being out of the way, you wouldn't be able to reduce it. And also, when you go in and it's, you know, more than five, six days, you will have new healing. You have extra bone that you have to clear. Uh, one of the things that I use and, you know, we have these fancy new meniscus root repair systems that they are very, very small. So even a small knee. You can put a two millimeter you know like tunnel there and with the loops and i use a suture tape that also provides less friction and can hold the tissue with the bone together so i put the tape you know in the front and in the back you can see the remnants of the tape here and the back as i'm pulling down and i have a k wire essentially to uh hold that piece together and what i want to do before i take the k wire and you know like fix them to see the very good alignment in the front and see a good tension on uh, on the ACL and then I typically tie over a bone bridge or uh, use an end of arm. You can always use a screw but in my mind the screw is falling out of favor a little bit because it needs C arm and you need a second surgery uh, with hard but you know like if you have a good piece uh, there is argument that you know like biomechanically the screw is a little bit stronger So whatever feels comfortable in your hands is good. What, uh, in terms of outcomes, they are not doing great. If you see some of the serious report, you know, 80 to 85% stability in the lagoon. So this is something that we need to, you know, uh, be addressing in research as well, as we have these new techniques to see where we are and whether we improve our outcomes. So this was done. The patient was doing great. She went back to soccer three years later, not three, like two and a half years later, came in office, contact injury. Somebody tucked her from uh, behind. The other knee is loose and she has a bone age of 10.5. So still very, very young. You see the bone contusions and you see the ACL here uh, that, you know, like essentially is broken and with the bone contusions, you know that you have to do something. So this is the algorithm. I'm not gonna go into the interest of time through the whole details, but think previous patients, the girls and the boys, uh, that they are 10, 11 or 12, depending on the bone age, and make sure that you always have a hand x-ray to uh, recognize the bone age. You need a bone uh, technique, you need a technique that respects the physis. And these are the two most common techniques, is the extraficial, you know, like sparing technique, and the all tunnels. What I decided to do on this uh, kid, because you know, the family was very, very concerned that didn't have any, uh, didn't want to have any risk or like uh, bulging uh, on uh, uh, any risk for growth at rest. And she was okay with the risk of having a little bit of bulging. I took the IT band, you can see, recognize the IT band. You need a quite good length because you can see that you take the IT band and you pull it, you know, like you bring it on the other side. And then you have to have a small tool, you know, like either a periosteal elevator or a small rasp here to grab these sutures and bring the ACL into that groove. And then you make a small incision here on the tibia and you suture that on the periosteal. If the patient would, you know, like be concerned about the lateral bulging, uh, typically you can do the all inside technique. Now with, you know, like the uh, tunnels that you can, you know, like uh, have, that they are very very small and the new grafts. I so use a quad graft. You can see this is you know like uh, a big eight nine millimeter graft that I use in this patient. You need to make sure that you have the C arm, but also look into the scope and make sure that you don't see any remnant on the physis there. And I think both techniques do very very well. Are these common? I think they are. I think, you know, like uh, probably they've seen you, haven't seen them. I think increased awareness, the fact that we uh, have our kids doing more sports and more organized sports at a younger age is the reason that we start seeing them. But increased awareness and technologies, the uh, advancements will help us deal with these uh, injuries uh, much, much more uh, commonly. Uh, Female, girls, be very, very careful. And, you know, if you see a 12-year-old, you know, or younger with a knee injury, doesn't mean that can be something very, very benign or a sprain. Uh, I think one of the things that uh, will change in the future, and it's our responsibility as well, is to implement prevention strategies. I think they work. There are studies that, you know, like talk about 30 to 50% or more of uh, um, reducing the risk of an ACL. And I think this is something that we need to do as our kids are uh, doing uh, more and more. Um, in terms of non-op management, uh I think it's a very, very real discussion with the patients and setting the expectations. Uh, sometimes uh, I hate when you know patients are coming in my office and they had a buckle injury that ended up uh, being an uh, ACL injury in the retrospect, but they ignored it or they didn't have an MRI. And then they came to me with an ACL injury and an associated meniscus uh, injury as well. Uh, allografts are not an option for these patients. I don't know if orthobiologics will do something and with the new enhancements will be something in the future but for now we need to use an autograft. And you know like as I said these are the big consideration the presence of devices you need to modify your techniques. The fact that they will not be compliant they will go back to everything. So you need to be thinking also the length term, you know, like um, uh, um, viability of the knee and also everything is very, very small. So you need to use, you know, small instruments. Um, the techniques, these are the two uh, most common techniques. The failure rates are, you know, like um, anywhere between five to 15% in the literature. And in terms of growth or arrest, it's real. It can happen up to 20% if you're not careful, especially in these very, very young patients. And uh, in terms of arthrofibrosis, your rehabilitation also should be very, very carefully designed because they get stiff much, much uh, easier. Uh, so you need to be careful with these. Uh, thank you so much. And I would like to invite you in Boston uh, you know, next month for this uh um, amazing isacus Congress.
2: Thank you. So we're gonna start off the questions with a question from Dr. Bujar Shabani from Kosovo, but in a moment we'll open up the floor again for questions uh, from the audience to any of the faculty. So if you have questions, uh, please uh, put them in the Q&A and we'll address those. Uh, go ahead, Dr. Shabani.
3: Thank you very much, I'm sorry. Um... Great presentation, uh, Nicholas. My question is, uh, what are the uh, uh, biomechanical implications of this technique that you presented? That's a great uh, question. I think one of the uh, criticism of the IT band technique is that it's not completely anatomic because you don't have something to hold it in that tunnel. Or a tunnel on the um, over the top position. So you need to be very, very careful to tighten the graft properly. And believe it or not, as you know, in orthopedics, everybody, everything makes circles uh, over, you know, like say a 30 year period. This is a technique that was used in adults, but you know, it was getting lax. Um, so that's why it serves as a great technique for pediatric patients. But in terms of adults, you need to be very, very careful when you are doing it. The good thing and the advantage of this technique is that as you are taking the IT band on the lateral side of the condyle, you are essentially doing an extraarticular tenodesis, kind of, you know, like the lateral external tenodesis that you know like you have. And now with combined ACL injuries, because that's the same thing. You don't put it under the LCL, but essentially you suture that on the condyle. And that essentially biomechanically helps the external rotation uh, uh, strain. And I think that is a powerful tool uh, that explains why this technique, while it's not ideal, has very good results. Even, you know, like in five or 10 years uh, from the day of the surgery.
2: Okay. I'm going to invite Dr. Hoog to join us back for the panel discussion and all the other faculty. And uh, Dr. Pashas, I have a question for you. We've all seen uh, patients who have stiffness after fixation of a tibial spine avulsion fracture. Uh, What tips do you have for us to reduce that risk?
3: This is a great question. And this is a major problem. Uh, Essentially, you uh, have to utilize whatever you have. And depending on the age, you need to inter- uh, involve uh, rehab really fast. What I do is I either lock them in a well-fitted knee brace and lock them for in extension for the first week so they will be comfortable. And I aggressively ice them so we'll have the swelling in the first phase of swelling uh, really reduced. And then i get them to rehab with the cpm machine so they can you know start bending you know like up to 3 or 4 weeks so uh, like the first phase of having them in extension i think really really helps because if you let them be without that phase they can become uh arthrofibrotic in the front and that is far more important than having them being a little bit stiff in flexion so I would advocate to just deal with extension first and then slowly over the next, you know, like four weeks aggressively to start getting the flexion.
2: Fantastic. Uh, Dr. Vadova, I have a question for you. I really uh, like the idea of um, injecting partial tears of the rotator cuff with PRP. Uh, but at the same time, I have a concern about it. So obviously, one of the concerns with partial tears is that they get bigger over time. And if you're injecting a partial tear, is it possible that your injection can uh, result in tear progression, uh, that volume of fluid making the tear bigger? And do we have any long-term data or mid-term data to show us that we're not actually causing damage to the tendon and in injecting it? Okay, and um,
7: this is a very good question. Uh, uh, I, I use PRP in partial rupture especially in intratendinosis partial rupture uh, when I decide to not do surgery in this patient or a patient that don't want to be to be under surgery after that when the, the the partial rupture is uh, more than 50%, for example, I encourage the patient to do surgery. Um, most of the time, you diagnose that it is a partial tendon rupture when you are injecting because uh, in the MRI on the under ultrasound you diagnose an a tendinosis or tendinopathy or the tendon, and when you inject, you see how the fluid the tendon, tendon and in this moment you are doing the diagnosis of a partial rupture as uh, so regard the future i, I know aware because for many times I, I i did a cortison in these cases in the subacromial space and the, in the visibita group um I, I i saw very good results at the short time but after the, Few months or, or after a year, for example, the patient come back me to do a surgery because uh, in the new MRI I saw how this uh, rupture get bigger. Uh, I not seeing this these these examples uh, today because I do I do autobiologic especially PRP in these cases. Um, I I don't have a data that uh, can uh, show me that I have generated regenerated the tendon, or something like that. But uh, I, I, I'm seeing very good results with that
2: in the middle time. Thank you. Welcome, cool. Doctor Who. Can I invite you to uh, um, join the panel discussion?
0: Absolutely, and it's a pleasure, Adam. I don't know if there's any remaining questions to the faculty through the chat or that you want to tackle or uh, are we ready to close the webinar?
2: Yeah, I think uh, let's take uh, uh, one more question if we have time. Uh, so uh, there's a question again for Dr. Vadova. Your talk was obviously very uh, exciting. There was uh, quite a lot of interest there. Uh, but the question is, there are several types of PRP available. How do you pick the right one?
7: There is... Uh, it's a very, very good question and really don't know the answer, the real answer. Maybe in a few years, in a few times, we're going to, to know more about that. But uh, 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 I use this common sense to do. If uh, I treat into a tendon, I want to generate, regenerate this tendon and and to generate an inflammation into the tendon. So. I use leukocyte-rich PRP for this pathology. If I want to treat a a joint, I use without leukocyte because the risk of generate pain because of the inflammation. Um, Maybe when I use to meniscal pathology, I use with leukocyte because to generate more inflammation and to stimulate uh, regeneration. Uh, no, uh, uh, maybe in, in muscle injuries, when you have a lot of fibrosis, I want to restart the, 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 the healing. So I used again, with locus and rage PMP.
2: Excellent. Thank you. I think we have time for one more question. And so, uh, Dr. Pachos, this one's for you. Um, what tendon do you prefer to use for ACL reconstruction in pediatric patients?
3: So um, I I use, I make it a um, a family patient choice. I use a hamstring or a quad, depending on, you know, the biometrics um, of the patient and how they, uh, what's the sport, I choose between the hamstring and the quad. Um, I, you know, like uh, without any disclosure, I think I was doing far more hamstring five years ago now with the new techniques, I'm doing far more uh, quads. And I also typed an answer um, for allographs. There was an answer that I typed in. Uh, they fail. They fail three to five times more if you do use an allograft in uh, pediatric patients. So that's why
2: you don't want to use them because they do fail Um that's great. And in our adult patients, we see that um, quads is obviously becoming very popular too, uh, but there are some concerns. So we have uh, observed increased risks of arthrofibrosis, cyclops lesions, reoperation for stiffness related complications. Are you seeing the same problems in pediatric patients with quads, and uh, how are you uh, minimizing the risk?
3: Correct. And this is a real thing. So you need to be very careful because, you know, everybody wants to have a good size uh, graft, especially when you can choose the size of your graft on your quad. So typically when you have a very, very young patient with an official, like I don't remember when was the last time I used a 10. So typically you use a little bit of a smaller graft because, you know, like the graft grows with uh, the patient as well, but you don't want a huge tunnel also for the physis, you don't want to be close to the physis, but also you don't want to be overstuffing uh, the joint, so we'll have a high risk of arthrofibrosis. That's a great point.
2: Fantastic. Thank you. I'd like to thank uh, Dr. De Hoog, Isikos, all the uh, faculty for your excellent contributions, and I'll hand back to Dr. De Oh, well,
0: Thanks a lot, Adnan. I uh, I really enjoyed the excellent lectures and Thanks for also a great moderation. I've learned a lot uh, tonight. Well, it's afternoon here. Um, the future looks bright with technology alongside in that. And a big thanks to you all, and especially also the participants from all over the world for tuning in. Um, please know that the recording of this webinar will be available for an on-demand viewing in Global Link within one week. And the participants will receive an email with the link when it is uploaded. So with that, you will also receive an attendance certificate that will be sent with that email. So from the Young Professional Task Force group, what a team we have, I would say. What a global delivery uh, done, thanks to all. And uh, what an Isakus family. And we look furthermore uh, to forward to see you all in Boston and to uh, have a, a wonderful delivery there as well. So thanks for joining us. So much more to come. The Young Professional Task Force is on the move. And please join us in our mission to deliver together and make a global
5: exposure and footprint for our new generation. See you in Boston.